Episode 16, Ghostly Tales from the Carolinas. Hello, and welcome to a special bonus episode of Missing in the Carolinas. While there are no missing people featured here, in honor of Halloween, I wanted to share some tales of ghosts and other supernatural occurrences from around the Carolinas. Because after all, who doesn't love a spooky story? From the tales of a ghost car that rides on the Cooper River Bridge in Charleston, to a number of other haunted bridges and spirits that inhabit buildings and universities and theaters, this is one you won't want to miss. A word of warning before we start, though. This episode contains details of suicides and murder. Listener discretion is advised for anyone under the age of 13. Since moving to North Carolina when I was 12 years old, I've had my fair share of experiences where I could swear I felt the presence of something or someone else. When my family first moved to the state, we lived in an old farmhouse on the outskirts of Weaverville, North Carolina. At the time, my stepfather's aunt owned the house, but I have no idea of the background of what it was before then. All I know is that it was old, dark, and not a place I ever felt comfortable in. The house was pretty isolated out in the woods, and the room that was supposed to serve as the living area never seemed to have enough light in it. It backed up to the woods, and there were times I would be in that room and physically feel a chill go through me. Whenever that would happen, I would exit the room as quickly as I had entered it. I never said anything to my parents. I never saw anything specific, but there was definitely a dark and ominous feeling that seemed to gather specifically in that one area of the home in the Western North Carolina mountains. Another experience I had involved an object that belonged to a guy I was dating in college. His father had died by an apparent suicide years earlier. One afternoon, while at my boyfriend's apartment by myself, I was drawn to a table in the living room that had a framed photo of his father in it. Although there were absolutely no windows open in the apartment at the time, nor was I standing under any sort of vent, the picture frame suddenly flipped forward face down on the table in front of me. I didn't know if it was some sort of greeting or a sign that I should leave the apartment, but I do remember not hanging around long after to find out. Another place in Asheville that left a big impression on me was an apartment I rented a few years after I graduated from college. The building was adjacent to the VA hospital and just across the street from an old abandoned building that many claimed to be haunted. I believe that old building is being renovated right now to house the new mental health department at the current VA hospital. The building I lived in was renovated to become apartments and I rented a one bedroom with my now husband. I'm not positive of the history, but I'm pretty sure it was also a hospital at one point because you could tell by the architecture and layout of the studios and the apartments. We loved the tall windows in the living room and bedroom that let natural light into our apartment, but there was one evening when we experienced something I can only describe as another presence in our bedroom as we tried to go to sleep. I can't even explain it, other than there was a heavy, foreboding presence in the room, and when I tried to tell my fiancé about it, his face changed. He was trying to talk to me and ask me what was wrong, but it wasn't his face. I know how strange that must sound, but it's the only way I can think to describe it. Also, the only way to get into the laundry room in the building was through a long, mildewy hallway in the basement. 
and I always had the feeling that it had led to a hospital morgue at one point. Even if I was alone in that hallway or in the laundry room, there was always this sense that there were other people around me, and I would see things out of the corner of my eyes that were no longer there when I turned around. I was pretty happy when we were finally able to move out of that apartment. Now I'm going to start with a few other well-known hauntings that take place in the city. First up, haunted buildings and landmarks. As you can probably already tell, Asheville is a city that is ripe with stories of haunted places and supernatural occurrences. Another place I personally felt the presence of something was at the Biltmore Estate. George Vanderbilt built the home in the early 1900s, and it remains the largest privately owned home in America. It's beautiful and stately and situated on 125,000 acres of wooded land and gardens. Even Hollywood has taken note of its beauty and filmed several movies on the grounds. George Vanderbilt passed away in 1914, and the property is now owned by the descendants of George, who keep the home and grounds open for public tours. One of George's favorite places in the home was his expansive library, paneled in rich dark wood and filled with his favorite books. While there is something about the entire estate that leaves you looking over your shoulder as you walk through it on a public tour, I definitely remember sensing something in that library. The Vanderbilts were known for generously hosting friends, family, and other guests in their spacious estate when it was first built, and George's wife Edith often had to coax George from the library when it was time to entertain. People passing through the library have reported hearing a female voice whisper, George, and both workers and visitors have also said they hear sounds of laughter, music, and clinking glasses, even though no one actually lives in the home or throws parties there anymore. Others have also reported seeing a shadowy figure in the library, possibly George. The indoor swimming pool on the estate, although it is now drained of water, was another area of the home that made me nervous. While I didn't hear or see anything personally, I got that same feeling I had in the farmhouse and in the renovated hospital room apartment. There have also been reports from others that they've heard the sound of disembodied voices coming from the Biltmore Estate pool area, as if the guests are still enjoying their time on the luxurious estate. The Omni Grove Park Inn is also home to a ghost, but according to the employees there, the Pink Lady is no one to be afraid of. A man named Edwin Wiley Grove first visited the town of Asheville on his doctor's advice, as the mountains and the clean, fresh air of North Carolina were considered a good place for those seeking respite and relief from health ailments. This is what also brought George Vanderbilt to the area, as well as celebrities such as F. Scott Fitzgerald and his wife Zelda. Grove made his fortune selling a pretty questionable tonic called Grove's Tasteless Chill Tonic. And after he saw how popular Asheville was growing with tourists, he set about building the stately Grove Park Inn, meant to rival some of the finest hotels in the country. According to the legend, the Pink Lady is the spirit of a young woman who fell to her death from the fifth floor of the inn in the 1920s. She has been seen in the form of a pink mist, or sometimes as the apparition of a young woman in a beautiful pink ball gown. Depending on who you talk to, 
the young woman was either at the hotel for a secret meeting with a married lover, which ended in her suicide, or she was a debutante who accidentally fell to her death off the balcony. Her spirit seems to be attached to room 545, which is connected to the indoor balcony where she fell to her death. I did tour the floor while I stayed there, including the room outside of 545, and could sense some sort of presence there, although I didn't see or hear anything. Guests and hotel employees have never reported anything evil about the spirit of the pink lady. She does seem to frequent the bedsides of children who become ill while staying at the inn, and also enjoys playing with other children who have no idea who she is. She may also cause lights or air conditioners to flicker on and off, and other harmless pranks. The South Carolina State Museum in Columbia Back in the 1800s, before the museum came into existence, the building operated as a cotton mill called Columbia Mills. It was known as the first totally electric-powered mill in the world. But in 1895, a tragic accident occurred on the site, and the victim's spirit seems to have remained in the building. William Wallace was 14 years old and the son of one of the mill's employees. He was visiting the mill one afternoon as his mother went out on some errands in town. He and a friend were near the shaft of the mill's large freight elevator, which was used to transport cotton in between floors. The boys were looking over the rails of the shaft, thinking the elevator was below them, but instead it was above where they stood. When it came down, William didn't move out of the path in time and was nearly decapitated. He died at the scene a short time later. The mill closed in 1981 and the building was donated to the state. It is now home to the South Carolina State Museum and many employees have reported seeing a shadowy figure dressed in overalls wandering around the building. They call him Bubba. One employee swears she saw him on top of a display one morning before the museum opened. He was dressed in overalls and holding his head under one arm. He's also been spotted sitting in the driver's seat of a display with a hearse. One visitor reported to the employees that they needed to dust the mannequin sitting in the hearse. They replied that there never had been a mannequin in the hearse display. Was it Bubba playing a prank? Employees have also reported hearing the sound of a bell ringing when no one else is supposed to be in the building. Before I segue into haunted bridges, I want to share a story about the flaming ship of Ocracoke Island. We've all heard the stories of a man named Edward Teach who terrorized the seas as the infamous pirate Blackbeard. But this story is a little more obscure to those of us who don't live on the eastern coast of North Carolina. Ocracoke Island was the home of Blackbeard at one point, but it also had the reputation of being one of the most dangerous places for ships to pass through, thus the nickname, the Graveyard of the Atlantic. During the wars between the Protestants and the Catholics, the armies of King Louis XIV were retreating through the German countryside, destroying everything in their path. It was then that 10,000 German Palatines, as they were called, left their homes and converged on England in an attempt to find peace. The British were accommodating for a time, but they eventually started looking for ways to rid themselves of their German visitors. With Queen Elizabeth looking for ways to colonize in the New World, they struck up a deal with the Palatines to board a ship bound for the Outer Banks. Unfortunately, the captain of the chartered ship 
took note of an abundance of jewels and gold carried by the passengers. He hatched a plan with other crew members. On a moonless night, before the ship was to arrive at its final destination, the captain and crew slipped below deck and murdered the men, women, and children aboard. They doused the decks with oil, set the ship on fire, and loaded their new treasures on a longboat bound for the nearby port city of Bath. As they gleefully rowed away from the ship, they were stunned with what happened next. Though the sails were down on the flaming ship, it was gliding full steam ahead toward their boat. They were unable to outrow the ship, and it rammed into the longboat, sinking it, the treasures and the crew, into the ocean. The next day, the husk of the burned-out ship washed ashore on Ocracoke. Legend has it that the flaming ship appears each year on the first full moon in September. Now let's talk about some haunted bridges. There's another spot just a few miles away from the Grove Park Inn in Asheville that has drawn a fair amount of paranormal investigators and curious teenagers over the years. It's called Helen's Bridge, and I personally was too chicken to go there myself in high school. I've heard a few different versions of Helen's story, as most legends go. One legend says that Helen lived and worked in Zealandia Mansion, a castle-like house that overlooked the city. She was the mistress of the married owner of the house and was rejected by the man after becoming pregnant. Heartbroken, she walked to the nearby bridge on Boquetcher Road and hung herself in the early 1930s. Another story says that Helen lived in another nearby home, raising her daughter. A fire broke out one evening while she was cooking, and she was unable to save her daughter, who perished in the flames. Overcome with grief, Helen hung herself a short time later from one of the steel posts on the bridge. It is believed that if you go to the bridge and call out Helen's name three times, she will appear. I've never heard stories of anyone actually seeing Helen, but I do know that people would have issues starting their cars back up if they were parked under or near the bridge. This is the reason I never went there myself. The last thing I wanted to do was get stranded on a country mountain road with a distraught ghost lurking nearby. A few years ago, I went on a ghost tour trolley ride in Asheville, and the tour guide actually told our group they won't take the trolley up to Helen's Bridge anymore because they had trouble with the engine cutting out during the tour. Whether or not that was Helen's fault, something supernatural does seem to be present in that area of the bridge. Lydia's Bridge Have you ever heard a story that features a driver picking up a female hitchhiker on the side of a dark road, dressed in a beautiful gown and looking disheveled? When the driver tries to take the girl to the address she's given him, he realizes she's no longer in the car. Upon knocking on the door of the home, an older woman will sadly tell the driver that he has probably met her daughter, who died in an automobile accident years earlier, but is still trying to get home. If you live near the town of Jamestown, North Carolina, you've probably heard the story and the accident that happened at Lydia's Bridge. When I was researching this episode, I found the story in two different places. The book Cursed in the Carolinas, Stories of the Damned by Patty A. Wilson, and in this year's Charlotte Magazine's special October issue called Charlotte Haunts. Cursed in the Carolinas described the young woman, Mary Lydia Jones, and how she was beside herself with excitement 
over attending her high school prom with her boyfriend. She wore a ruby red dress with a black sash, long black gloves, and black high heels. On the way home from the prom, the two teenagers were so enamored with one another that Lydia's boyfriend swerved the car off the road, crashing. Lydia died at the scene. The bridge overpass where the accident happened was renamed Lydia's Bridge in her honor, and as time went on, more and more motorists reported seeing a young woman in a red dress asking for help because she had been in an accident. In O.C. Stone Street's book, Curse of the Wampus and Other Short Spooky Stories of the Piedmont, the author and university professor attempted to track down the origin of this story. He spoke with a library archivist who said Lydia was a young woman who died in 1923 on her way home from a New Year's Eve party. The town built a new overpass in the 1960s on High Point Road, and Lydia's Bridge is actually the old abandoned underpass to the right of the bridge. So it may not have been the prom, but one can see that Lydia was a real person. I, however, would also be interested to know if there was a boyfriend involved in the crash and if he survived. Why is it that Lydia is alone on the dark road, trying to find her way home to her parents? The Cooper River Bridge I recently visited Charleston, South Carolina, which is a city that is literally built on the graves of others. The Cooper River Bridge, also technically known as the Arthur Ravenel Jr. Bridge, is a cable-stayed bridge that connects Charleston to Mount Pleasant. It's also one that many people in the Carolinas are familiar with. The bridge is home to a 10K run held each spring that draws visitors and participants from several surrounding states. I wonder how many people know that the bridge put in place before the Cooper River Bridge, the John P. Grace Memorial Bridge, was also the site of a tragic accident that took place on February 24, 1946. According to the book The Ghosts of Charleston, written by Julian T. Buxton III, a freighter named Nicaragua Victory dropped anchor in the Wando River near Hobcaw Point. The ship had been in the Charleston Harbor for two days awaiting repairs but the weather turned stormy and the anchors had been inadvertently pulled up the night before by a boatswain. With the gusts of wind brought on by the weather, the Nicaragua Victory began floating downstream. The engines were shut down at that point and there was no way to stop it. At the same time, three different vehicles were climbing the two-lane Grace Memorial Bridge's first tower, two cars and an army mail truck. The 12,000-ton freighter, struck one of the bridge's main pillars and tore into the support trestles. The bridge remained intact for about three minutes after the impact, and then bridge rivets began ricocheting through the air, hitting the deck of the freighter. The first car was able to cross the bridge safely and sped on towards Charleston. The third car, an army mail truck, slammed on his brakes in the middle of the bridge, leaped out of the truck, and took off running back down the bridge. The second car, a 1940 green Oldsmobile carrying John Mixon, his wife Julie, his mother Lucinda, and his seven-year-old son Eric and two-year-old daughter Allie, was not so lucky. John panicked after the impact from the freighter and stopped and started the car on the bridge a number of times before plunging into the Cooper River as the bridge sections began separating. A dive team was dispatched to the water in an effort to locate the car 
but couldn't find it. A month later, the jaws of a large grappling bucket were dredging the river bottom and lifting chunks of the bridge wreckage out of the water when they caught hold of the car's rear bumper and lifted it into the air. All five bodies were still in the car. I want to talk for a minute about the history of this bridge. By the 1960s, the Grace Memorial Bridge had become insufficient with its narrow two lanes. A new bridge was constructed alongside and parallel to it. This bridge, named the Silas N. Pearman Bridge, opened in 1966 with three lanes and a modern 12-foot width open to northbound traffic, while its older counterpart carried the southbound traffic into downtown Charleston. These two bridges became functionally obsolete by 1979, but it took almost 20 years to raise financial support for the eight-lane bridge over the Cooper River. It eventually opened in 2005. I give this history on the bridge because I find it fascinating that two different ghostly sightings of that 1940s Oldsmobile happened in between the time of the Grace Memorial Bridge and the Cooper River Bridge construction. One of these sightings occurred in February of 1966, when a family of five was returning from a weekend at their family beach home on nearby Sullivan's Island. They were driving a 1965 Pontiac station wagon over the Grace Memorial Bridge. As they neared the bridge's summit, the father driving the station wagon panicked when an old green sedan in front of him slammed on its brakes. The driver of the station wagon immediately slammed on his brakes and shouldered into the left-hand lane. The old Pontiac continued rolling down the road. It was then that the driver of the station wagon took more of a notice of the green sedan, and what he saw startled him. The sedan appeared to be a 1940s-era model, and it was in excellent condition. When he went to pass it, he noticed five people in the green car. His wife mentioned that the people in the sedan were acting strangely, all staring straight ahead with expressionless looks on their faces. They were also dressed in clothing from an older time. The driver of the green car had a ghostly white complexion, and then the car continued on, eventually driving out of sight. 30 years later, in 1996, a woman named Harriet Langton had just moved to Charleston from Charlotte. As she drove her Honda Sport Civic onto the bridge, she began to pass a car on the left that was going slowly once they had crossed over the highest point of the bridge. As she glanced over at the car, she noticed it was from another era, possibly the 1940s. Two children sat in the back seat with an elderly woman. A man and a woman sat in the front. All were dressed in clothing from the first half of the century. The driver turned to look at her, and Harriet was so shocked by his ghostly white face that she slammed on her brakes. The old car continued driving, eventually fading out of sight. I'd be curious to know if there have been any more recent sightings of the Mixon family car on the Cooper River Bridge. Before we continue, let's take a minute for a word from our sponsor. I've always enjoyed writing fiction, but I didn't really get serious about it until I was in my 30s. After submitting to the WOW Flash Fiction Contest a few times, I was thrilled when I placed as a runner-up in 2012 with my piece titled In the Depths. WOW still hosts a quarterly writing contest every three months, and I highly recommend entering it. The entry fees are minimal, 
and you can also purchase a critique to get feedback on your story once the contest concludes. The mission of this contest is to inspire creativity, great writing, and provide well-rewarded recognition to contestants. The contest is open globally, age is of no matter, and entries must be in English. And the best part is that the contest is open to all genres, so if you have a spooky story to share, it will fit right in. Literary agent Christina Perez with Zeno Literary Agency will be serving as the judge for the finalists in this contest. You can learn more about the contest guidelines at wow-womenonwriting.com and then click on the contest tab. Submit your entry by November 30th for the fall contest. Next, let's talk about haunted high schools and universities. The first story I have is a pretty crazy one that I'd never heard before this past week. It takes place at a high school that was a sports rival of my own high school. Clyde A. Irwin High is located in Asheville, which, as I'm sure you can tell by now, seems to be a hotbed of supernatural activity. Here's the backstory on this high school and why many think it's home to multiple spirits. Back in 1973, the Buncombe County Board of Education decided they wanted to upgrade and build a new campus for the high school. The problem was, the board also requested that a centuries-old potter's field, holding the graves of poor and homeless and elderly residents of the county, be moved in order to make room for the new building. I found an article from 2002 that ran in the Mountain Express, the town's alternative weekly newspaper. They did an extensive story on the supernatural occurrences that have taken place at the school. An unnamed retired assistant principal had this to say about the moving of the graves. My first thought was that they didn't need to move the graveyard in the first place. None of the school is directly built on it. The cemetery was between the fence of the football field and down onto the bank above the third floor of the school. In my opinion, they could have built the school in there and never had to move any of the graveyard. The board hired an independent contractor who was in the business of traveling around the country, removing cemeteries at the request of various development projects. The remains were reinterred on a hillside behind West Buncombe Elementary School, just across Lee's Creek Road from the high school, under military-style rows of identical white crosses. The article said, most of the graves, however, were unmarked, including those containing victims of a tuberculosis epidemic that came from a local sanatorium. The brick building that housed the sanatorium still stands near the current middle school. Some coffins were marked by tombstones because the cemetery had been used by local families before the county took it over. Records from the Pack Memorial Library indicate the cemetery was founded in the late 1800s by the Rhodes family. It is now known as the County Home Cemetery. The contractors searched for the unmarked grave sites by plunging a T-handled rod into the ground and feeling for soft spots. As the number of graves they excavated rose from their initial estimate of only 200 to at least 1,000, the gruesome toil aroused morbid curiosity. While most of the human remains were moved, one count puts it at 613 people, another at 604, hundreds were not moved and remain underground on the Irwin High School property near the football field and stadium concession stand. 
Over the years, there have been numerous reports of strange incidences around the school, and a lot of the reports come from members of the custodial staff who were there after hours. None of these people ever want to be named. The elevator in the school goes up and down by itself all the time. Another former unnamed teacher had this to say. There have been two occasions that I know of where there have been pictures hanging on the wall that for no reason at all just fell off and fell off in such a way they didn't fall straight down, but they fell out and away from the wall. There again, you could always explain that maybe somebody was doing something on the other side of the wall that maybe forced them off. Another employee said, I've seen the VCR eject a videotape that had been in all day long and not been played, and the VCR, just without any warning, automatically popped the tape out. To me, this sounds like something straight out of that 1980s movie Poltergeist. In this case, though, the spirits seemed to be more into playful pranks, like riding on elevators, knocking pictures off walls, moving trash cans, and slamming doors when no one is supposed to be in the building. Maybe the spirits are well aware that the students and administrators had nothing to do with disturbing the graves in the potter's field and are content to make themselves known in harmless ways. I also learned in this year's Charlotte magazine, Charlotte Haunts, that there seems to be a ghost at a gymnasium across the street from a high school not far from where I live, Mooresville High School. According to author O.C. Stone Street, who used to teach there, he heard multiple stories about the incidents at the Magnolia Gym. Legend has it that a student and talented basketball player named Tina died in a car wreck in the early 1970s. After that, people started hearing the sound of a basketball bouncing in the gym when no one else was there. One of the coaches said as he was closing up the gym one night, he heard the sound of a ball dropping and rolling after he turned the lights out. Then he heard a girl's voice say, do you want to play a game? The coach turned and ran so fast out of the gym, he forgot to lock up after himself. The University of South Carolina in Columbia also has its fair share of ghostly spirits. One seems like he is simply choosing to keep watch over a university he loved with all his heart. Founded all the way back in 1801, the University of South Carolina is one of the oldest public universities in the United States. A man named James Ryan McKissick was one of the most beloved presidents of the college, and he helped guide USC through the Great Depression and World War II. With the help of President Roosevelt's New Deal, McKissick expanded campus by adding a new library, as well as five dormitories for incoming students. He was serving as president when he died suddenly and unexpectedly of a heart attack in September of 1944. Students petitioned for his body to be buried in an area of the campus known as the Historic Horseshoe. His grave is located just a few feet from the campus library, and there are reports that the ghost of McKissick wanders around the building at night, turning on lights and going through the books. At Queen's University, located in Charlotte, employees and administrators shared tales of the various ghostly spirits that inhabit different buildings on the campus in the Charlotte Haunts article. A woman named Margaret Anna Burwell was an educator and wife of Reverend Robert Burwell, who served as the first president of the college from 1857 to 1872. Her spirit, 
visible as a shadowy figure wearing a long black dress, is said to appear after 10 p.m. on the second floor of what used to be called Burwell Hall. This past July, Queens announced that the university's Board of Trustees had voted to change the name of Burwell Hall, which served as the main administrative building on the campus for more than a century. Last year, Queen's staff discovered archival documents that the Burwells had direct ties to slavery, including the beatings of an enslaved woman named Elizabeth Hobbs, who lived and worked at the Burwells' home from 1835 to 1842. These documents stated that Margaret insisted on the beatings Elizabeth had endured. When Elizabeth Hobbs was emancipated in 1855, she took a job as a dressmaker in Washington, D.C., where one of her clients was First Lady Mary Todd Lincoln. Because of these findings, the task force at Queens felt that the removal of the Burwell name from the building was in order. Now, if Margaret Anna Burwell will continue to pay visits to the building that is no longer named after her, remains to be seen. Probably the most famous spirit at Queens University is the one of a young girl named Clara, who apparently hung herself from the banister of a back stairwell in a building called Morrison Hall, which now serves as the office for residence life and housing. Stories about why Clara took her life vary, but it appears to have happened around the end of World War II. The story made such an impression on the university that they erected a ceiling to floor panel of wooden slats that blocks access to the banister, just to be safe. Students and administrators report hearing noises coming from the unoccupied room where Clara resided, laptops mysteriously turning off and on in the room during meetings, a chair squeaking with no one in the room, and so on. When a WFAE reporter visited the campus last year, he picked up knocks and sounds in the stairwell that had no explanation. At the same time of his visit, another employee thought she heard the sound of a young woman crying in the stairwell, but when she went down the hall to investigate, could find no one there. And now, for the curtain call for this episode, I'd like to talk about haunted theaters and auditoriums in the Carolinas. Queen's University is also home to the spirit of a young woman named Suzanne Little in the building named after her, the Suzanne Little Recital Hall. Her husband, E.H. Little, was a well-known industrialist and philanthropist who donated the money in order for the building to be named after his wife, who loved music. Over the years, students and staff at Queens claimed to hear the faint sounds of a piano playing music in the basement halls near the recital space when no one is supposed to be there. Dana Auditorium at Guilford College is named for Charles Dana, a philanthropist who donated a good chunk of money toward the completion of the building in the 1900s. But the site of the auditorium contains a history that lends itself to potential hauntings. The Battle of Guilford Courthouse was a Revolutionary War battle fought on March 15, 1781. The battle resulted in a British victory, and many soldiers from both sides were wounded and killed. The area was used as a field hospital for the wounded and dying. There's also a cemetery directly across the street from the campus that has graves dating back to the 18th century, including a mass grave of both British and American soldiers from the American Revolution. According to school records, shortly after the auditorium was completed in 1961, strange happenings began to take place. In 
Some believe the spirit of a wounded soldier who died at the field hospital explores the building. There have also been tales of a young girl spotted in the choir room and a man in a brown suit. Others walking by the auditorium at night have heard the faint sounds of a piano playing from within. Dock Street Theater in Charleston. As I've already mentioned, the city of Charleston is said to be full of haunted places, and the Dock Street Theater, actually located on Church Street, is no exception. The original Dock Street Theater was built in the French Quarter section of the city in 1736. Due to a catastrophic fire that burned down most of the French Quarter in 1740, the theater sustained a great deal of damage. A glamorous establishment called the Planters Hotel was built on the site instead, and it also featured an auditorium space within. The hotel was popular with wealthy visitors to the area and also the locals. It had the reputation of being the place where aristocratic men were entertained by high-class prostitutes. One of these prostitutes was a woman named Nettie Dickerson. Nettie had come to the city at the age of 25 and was already considered a spinster in the hopes of meeting a rich and successful man she could marry. She found work in a local church, but grew depressed by her lowly social status and the fact that she was an old maid. She decided to try her hand at entertaining at the Planters Hotel and soon became a wealthy and sought-after woman. The parishioners and clergy at her church began shunning her, even though she continued to donate a large portion of her earnings as a prostitute to the church. One evening, while arguing with a priest from the wrought iron banister of the hotel, Nettie was struck by lightning and died. Not long after the Civil War, the hotel went bankrupt and closed down. It suffered additional damage in the 1886 earthquake that struck the city. In 1936, it reopened as a theater. In 2010, it underwent a $19 million renovation. The theater is managed by the city of Charleston and is also home to Spoleto Festival USA. This is one of the most popular places to visit in the French Quarter of Charleston, and thousands will tour the building each year. Though there are a few different ghosts that are said to haunt the theater, the most famous seems to be that of the forsaken Nettie Dickerson. Actors and shows at the theater claim to have seen a woman in a beautiful red dress, but her face is that of a grotesque and frightening apparition. Some workers at the theater say they see her frequently. While my research provided me with stacks of legends and hauntings in both North and South Carolina, I'm going to save some of these other stories for another podcast episode. I hope you've enjoyed this special bonus of Missing in the Carolinas. A full list of resources I used to put together this episode can be found in the show notes on the website, missinginthecarolinas.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor and give it a five-star rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're also now on Instagram and Facebook, so please like our pages and get started on a discussion of the missing people profiled on the show. If you want to visit my blog and read more about the true crime cases from all over the country, including ones featured here, visit missinginthecarolinas.com. Do you know of a missing persons case in North or South Carolina that you think should be covered? Email me at missinginthecarolinas at gmail.com with any details you can share. And don't forget to check out our sponsor, WOW, Women on Writing, and the great programs and writing contests they have to support writers at wow-womenonwriting.com.
www.macintoshmultimedia.com. Cover art for this podcast was designed by Macintosh Multimedia. All episodes are researched and written by me, Renee Robertson, with sound editing provided by Mia Robertson. Thank you.